Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. The BC government is set to introduce new legislation that will speed up foreign credential recognition. Will it go far enough? Plus, we begin our new series, The Next Million, with Metro Vancouver's population projected to grow by 1 million people by 2050. We look at the impact of all that growth on housing, transportation, to food security. And the National Hockey League continues with its Don't Say Gay policy with a ban on pride tape. Really? Pride tape? Come on, NHL. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. One of the issues we'll be focusing on over the next nine weeks is immigration during um, the uh, series. The impact of immigration on our region, of course, is very profound. Now, today, Premier David Eby focused on the issue in the context of international credential recognition. Now, for far too long, we've had internationally trained engineers, doctors, nurses, and people from other uh, professions who say uh, they're encouraged to come to BC, but once they arrive, they can't work in the profession they love and they've been trained in. We're expecting to see some big changes in the weeks ahead as the NDP government uh, is on the verge of introducing new legislation to address the issue. Here is Premier Eby speaking on the issue at a town hall this morning in Surrey. Uh, We rely heavily on trade and international relationships. We welcome people from around the world to come to British Columbia. We're glad to see people come to our province and we see how it makes us stronger. But we have to close that loop of uh, leveraging the advantages we have by letting people work and bring their expertise, bring their skills to help build our province. Uh, It means a better quality of life, not just for people who get those credentials and are able to work where they want to work, but for the entire province. It lifts the boats of everybody when we do this properly. It makes it a better province for everybody, and we can continue to be an example to the world of the benefits that come in fighting racism, fighting discrimination, getting rid of barriers, and being a welcoming place. And I'm really looking forward to introducing this legislation that uh, Minister Mercier and his team have been working so hard on. That was Premier Eby speaking at a town hall earlier this morning. Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Yes. Oh, hello. Hello there. I thought we almost lost you there. All right, we got you. Uh, So first and foremost, tell me, uh, when can we see this legislation introduced here uh, in uh, in the legislature? It's this fall session, of course. Yeah. So we expect it at some point in the next few weeks. So the legislation will be outlined uh, in the legislature. Uh, Premier Eby didn't want to give too much away in terms of what exactly is going to be in there. Uh, This town hall marks the final step in terms of public consultation. Uh, They have spoken to more than a thousand people across the province through a pretty extensive public consultation campaign, uh, speaking to people who are waiting for credentials, people who've gone through the credential system, uh, community organizations that work with uh, new immigrants here in Canada, also uh, other business-led organizations that count on uh, foreign credentialed workers to help supply their workforce. And so uh, we are now putting the final touches on this legislation uh, that will help Uh, expedite, in some cases, credentialing, make it easier, greater integration with the federal system uh, as uh, the province grapples through what is a massive uh, challenge. You know, just based on what we heard today, Jazz, uh, there are people that are waiting years and years and years to even get an opportunity to write tests to show that they have credentials. uh, And while they're doing that, it's putting incredible strain on themselves and their families. 
what I find interesting, Richard, in all of this is that, you know, this also will mean, you know, if you look at the, the bottlenecks in society in regards to recognition of, of international credentials, there's also, I would argue, societies and colleges, and in fact, even university institutions that have not worked very hard over the last 25 years to expediting some of these individuals uh, moving forward. Is there any conversation in regards to accountability from those organizations in regards yeah. to making sure it's a lot easier? Because sometimes you can, as an elected official, you can say, I want to do this, bring in the legislation, and all of a sudden there's bottlenecks in, 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 in a variety of societies and colleges. Yeah, there are huge bottlenecks here. One of the big issues we heard a number of times today was around this issue that someone writes an exam, and in this case it was a dentist who had to write five different exams. They wrote one exam. It took so long for that exam to be graded. By the time they had passed it to move on to the next one, all of the spots were booked up to write that exam, and they had to wait an additional eight months for the next opening. Like, how, how is this possible in terms of we have a crisis here where we need workers of a various number of skill levels? Uh, let's go to Alan in Vancouver. Hi, Alan. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm a hygienist in the city here, mm-hmm. and about 15 years ago, um, all these schools started opening up in Ontario to graduate hygienists really quick. 15-month programs instead of three-year programs that we see in B.C. Our market got flooded mm-hmm. with horrible hygienists. They can pass board exams, but they can't work in people's mouths because the training wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And that's within Canada. You look at, I know people within the nursing at BCIT, and uh, forever they're getting calls to come to other countries to set up programs where BCIT can take place or have their name there and, and everything. But when it came down to uh, quality control, they didn't want any of that. They just wanted the name to get the nurses out to make the money. Mm-hmm. They end up, what they need to first start doing here, all of the professions that we're talking about with uh, regards to medicine, are all suffering from so much international students who come and leave. Yeah. So stop it. Close those down. Let Canadians take the jobs because they stay here first. Alan, I appreciate your call. We've touched on this quite a bit. Uh, we did a quite a lengthy uh, amount of programs on international students. We have about 227 schools in our province. About 26, I believe, or 27 are, are public schools. The rest are all private schools. So everything uh, to, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, uh, learning to be a barber to learning how to drive uh, a truck. Uh, is is all part of that. And yes, in some cases, one would argue some of them are just diploma mills because we are bringing so many international students in. And in fact, our public systems are heavily reliant more and more uh, on international students in Ontario for the first time this year. International students are putting the same amount of dollars into the system that the public, uh, the, sorry, that the provincial government in Ontario is. It's amazing. And in some cases, our public uh, colleges now, I think in the case of Langara, or sorry, Kwantlen, we're at about 37% international students now. So it's quite significant. Richard, there's a good point that Alan raises there. Uh, I mean, there has to be some accountability uh, in regards to, A, they, they're meeting their requirements, number one, and it may take a few more tests, but at the end of the day, we are bringing people in who are able to do and meet the standards that are there that British Columbians yeah. all expect. Yeah, and I think part of the issue here is not that people aren't going through the accreditation process. I don't think anyone is calling for it to be less rigorous. Mm-hmm. I think it just needs to be a situation where it is fair. And the example I was bringing up before, and I don't know how much of it was jarbled, but 
Uh, a dentist spoke today about how when they completed their first test, it took so long to grade. They, then the only opportunity to book a second test was eight months down the road. You know, we are making these people wait far too long that if there is the interest to do these jobs, jobs that are needed here, uh, that they need to have the opportunity to at least prove that they are able to do so at the standards that we have in schools here. Because that's the challenge of foreign credentialing is it's unclear what the standards are. But if you are a practicing dentist in so many other countries in the world, you no doubt have skills that should allow you to practice here with potentially some, you know, um, top-ups in, in some of the skills and potentially language that you've learned. Uh, so I think that's the issue. And, and yes, Alan brings up valid points about these diploma mills, but so many of these people have accreditation and work work experience that many here do not have. And, and yes, there's a balancing factor to get younger um, Ex, uh, younger professionals that work experience, but we have so much need here for so many of these positions uh, that that's, you know, we need to find a way to make it more efficient to get them into the workforce. Yeah. I mean, there, there are almost like two issues here. I, I would agree with Alan is saying there are some diploma mills and you can see it. You can hear from people when they call the open lines, you're like, you graduate these people, they pay tens of thousands of dollars for their diploma, but they're really not employable, even though they have a certificate. And uh, that speaks to our system and the fact that we've come, become so, well, drunk on the money of international students that we are not, uh, we're allowing this to move forward. But there are legitimate cases, many cases, where you have people who are doctors or nurses or engineers, and if you provide them at least the, um, an avenue to say, okay, it's going to take you two and a half years to get the, the accreditation, let's go there. I remember years ago as a reporter, you know, it's just for doctors alone, I remember this doctor who was uh, worked in Bangladesh, but you know he'd he'd have to apply, go to school for two or three years, and then on top of that, uh, they're only allowing about five positions in the province. Where if you were an international doctor, you had, would have to go an intern afterwards. And there's just he, he's got to raise his family, he's got to right. pay for rent, he's got to move forward. He said, no, it's much easier for me to just be a taxi driver, and that's what that person stayed, and that's unfortunate, but that's part of the issue. Uh, let's go to a uh, Glenn and Langley. Hi, Glenn. Hello. Uh, yeah, I find it quite ironic that a man and a wife come in and they they fast track them through their uh, accreditation for being nurses, but they can't afford to live here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like how, how do you win? Well, uh, you know what? If you fast track a doctor and a nurse, uh, maybe we say we help you with some of your loans potentially, and you move to Burns Lake because they got one doctor, they could probably use a second, right? Or and maybe they'll move to Alberta. Yeah, well, that's true. But it's it rents are up forty percent in Alberta, so it's not all perfect over there as well. That's the nature of housing, I guess, in in big cities. And I think one of the things people are pushing back on is, wait a minute, it's so expensive here. How come all these people are coming in? But that's part of the issue as well, right? We've still got to attract people and say so you can get ahead in this region. Yeah, and their families are here. This this brings up a massive issue that someone may be trained as a doctor where they could make a substantial enough income to afford a house, but because they can't get their credential, they're working as a nurse or someone else in the healthcare system, they can't get enough money, they get stuck in a situation where they can't afford a house, and they may just leave. They may go to Alberta. They may go back uh, to their home country. And I heard one story today of um, an individual trained as a dentist move here, can't get accreditation, so they are traveling back 
to Iran in this case to practice as a dentist, in essence, leaving their family here in Canada, not raising their children, putting the burden on, in this case, the wife to raise the children, Mm -hmm. creating huge anxiety about a traveling father that isn't there to raise a kid. These aren't the sort of situations we want to see no matter what country you're in. So, Mm -hmm. yes, affordability is a massive issue, and, and that's a challenge for BC recruiting. But as you get people in in these higher paying jobs that they are trained to do, you can then help them pay more taxes, buy a home, integrate into our communities. Richard, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure as always. Sorry about the technical difficulties, Jeff. Hey, we figured it out. There you go. It's Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We're talking today about the province uh, about to introduce legislation on international uh, credential recognition for so many immigrants who come to this country. Time now to look at the next million. Now, Metro Vancouver is the economic centre of British Columbia, home to 55% of BC's population and 61% of its GDP. Today, the region sits at the intersection of commerce with North America and the Asia-Pacific region. Newcomers continue to flock here, drawn by a globally connected city, offering a great quality of life with a highly highly skilled and diverse workforce. By 2025, Canada will be welcoming 500,000 immigrants a year, with a fifth of those moving to British Columbia. And over the next three decades, Metro Vancouver will receive an additional 1 million residents for a total population of 3.8 million by the year 2050. Starting today, CKNW's new series, The Next Million, will look at how the region addresses this unprecedented growth, which uh, increases the need for housing, infrastructure, increased spending on transit and road networks, and greater need for services of all kinds, including frontline emergency care as well. Further urban sprawl also raises environmental concerns, such as a car-dependent culture and encroachment on farmland, wetlands, and wildlife. Metro Vancouver has long had a reputation for our commitment to livability and sustainability but can we sustain that reputation with the population projected for, uh, to grow from 2.8 million to 3.8 million? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue is Michael Geller. He's president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and real estate consultant. I've said a lot, Michael. I know it's a big issue, but I am glad we have you here for the first segment. Well, I'm glad you're doing this whole segment because uh, it's going to go on for the next couple of months. Yes, and I'm glad we are because it is a complex issue, but it's one I think we should be discussing. It's going to take that kind of time. So first, maybe just a broad question. Is this as daunting as it sounds? <laughs> well, when when your producer mentioned it to me, I did check to see how long has it taken for the last million. Mm-hmm. And it was about 30 years. So 1993. Yeah. I remember 93. You remember yeah. 93. Um, it wasn't that long ago in some respects. And we have seen some dramatic changes. And uh, But we're also going to see, I think, quite some different patterns of development in the next 30 years. All right. Well, let's talk um, housing because it is the issue of the moment and it's going to be for a long time. Where do you see housing? You, you and I talk about the policies of today and the impact and sometimes the past. Where do you see housing, how we build housing, how it's approved, what kind of housing we're going to have? Uh, where do you see us going in the next 30 years in this region? Away from the downtown of Vancouver. I think we're going to see more and more people moving uh, south of the Fraser, moving out towards Chilliwack, Abbotsford. We'll see some people moving north, up along that Sea to Sky corridor. Not a lot, but certainly Squamish and the area around there. Mm-hmm. And with improved transportation, I think we'll definitely see, see that happening. And believe it or not, we'll see people moving to Nanaimo and commuting to Vancouver 
coming in for three days a week, as they do in London, England, where people don't actually live in the city. They live two or three hours from the city and then come in three or four days a week. Is there a, uh, so does the importance of downtown diminish? I think it does to some degree, although it will always be important. People will still come downtown, but they won't be living in downtown and living in the center of the city. And I really mean the center of the city. Yeah. I think people just for purely financial reasons mm -hmm. and also for quality of life. I mean, not everybody wants to live on the 27th floor of a high rise. And I guess you, if you were to redesign Metro Vancouver, you wouldn't put downtown Vancouver in this location. Now, it's a beautiful location, great for a postcard, but in regards to ease and comfort and travel and everything else for Metro Vancouver, you would probably put it in a different place. That's right, right? more in a geographic center, yeah. which is why it's interesting to see what's going to happen in places like Burnaby, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I think most people who drive along the highway and they look at those towers in Burnaby, Metrotown, and other uh, centers in Burnaby are astounded at just the scale of development there. Mm -hmm. Certainly Surrey, we're going to see a new downtown in Surrey. And to some degree, a smaller downtown, if you like, or concentration of offices on the North Shore. Mm -hmm. I think all of this is going to happen over the next 25 years. So what will housing look like? Uh, is it going to be, um, as I've said many times, not just a, a war on single-family housing, but single-family housing would have lost the war by then, and we were going to focus on perhaps that, you know, the two- and three-bedroom townhomes, that those will probably become the norm. You know, it, it's interesting so many people are predicting the demise of the single-family house. And I won't be here, unfortunately, 25 years from now, or not likely, mm -hmm. uh, to, to find out if I'm right. But I think people will continue to want to live in ground-oriented forms of housing. So that does mean townhouses, but we'll also see different forms of single-family housing. I mean, if you go down to uh, the United States, uh, around Seattle, you see these communities of small houses clustered around. I, I think people are not going to give up completely on different forms of ground-oriented. But there's no doubt we'll see a lot more townhouses. We'll finally see what I call fee-simple townhouses, which mm -hmm. are townhouses that are not part of a strata uh, corporation. And we'll see stacked townhouses and so forth. That's definitely coming. And we'll see those forms of housing in existing single-family neighborhoods that are being gently densified. That mm -hmm. will definitely happen. And we'll still see significant density or greater density along those transit corridors then? I think so, uh, for sure. And certainly uh, the city of Vancouver is being encouraging that. But as somebody said to me, why do we always put the highest density in the worst, most polluted area? And yeah. there's some truth, some truth to that question. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, I think we will become more European to the extent that more and more people will be living in what we call multiple forms of housing, apartments, uh, low-rise apartments, and so forth. Now, we call this series The Next Million. Um, I mean, you've gone through some of the numbers in regards to our population growth. When did it all change, change for us in regards to sort of people going, yeah, that's a great place to live? Expo 86 invited the world 
and they came. And if you look at the statistics, for many, many years, we were around 1.5%, 1. 1.6% annual increase in population. Mm-hmm. And 87, 88, 89, it jumped to 3% per annum, which was quite a significant increase. Um, interestingly, it's actually slowed down in the last 10 years. And I attribute that to some degree to, to just simply the cost of housing. And you were chatting earlier about professionals moving here and the challenge of getting doctors. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget a doctor, a specialist at VGH saying to me one day, Geller, you know, this problem with housing affordability, it just isn't affecting lower income uh, baristas. We, we're having a hard time getting gynecologists to come to, to Vancouver General simply because of the cost of housing. My guest is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. We're talking about uh, the next million. How do we uh, make this city inclusive? Now, Michael, we've talked a little bit about housing, but one of the things is also livability. You know, to go down to your local community centre, there's going to be huge demands for just, uh, you know, uh, services from City Hall, uh, community centres and parks. How do you... are, are we headed in the right direction? Because each municipality is going to have a different policy. Surrey calls itself, itself the city of parks. We are fighting for more parks in the city of Vancouver proper. Each community is going to be a little different. We've already added a lot of people. We're going to add another million. Give me a sense of what you think this region uh, could potentially look like, but just in regards to the demand on services. The city of Vancouver used to have a standard of it. 2.75 acres of park space for every 1,000 residents mm-hmm. because that's what we actually had a number of years ago. And for a while, when developers were building large projects, they were actually required to provide park space in accordance with that formula within development. So Coal Harbor, False Creek, Bayshore Lands, all of those developments were required to add park or make significant financial contributions. Sadly, we've stopped requesting that. Mm -hmm. And so I look at the Broadway corridor plan where there's potentially significant amounts of development, but very little additional park. Now, you don't need large parks, but you do need more small neighborhood parks, pocket parks, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And the same, I think, holds true for other municipalities. As they plan larger redevelopment areas, it will be essential to think about where the parks and where the community centers go and where the schools go. Mm -hmm. Because without all of that, what we call social infrastructure, then we'll lose the livability that has brought so many people here in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to have uh, Transit CEO Transit CEO joining us uh, for this series as well. Talk a little bit about transit, but I do want to ask you about this. How where do you see transit fitting in all of this in regards to development? In regards to just uh, movability in our city, moving people around. I wasn't here in the 1930s when they built the Lionsgate Bridge. But as soon as they built that bridge, all of a sudden people started to move to the North Shore. It was transportation that led to that development. In fact, that happens everywhere. And so to a large degree, where people live 
over the next 20, 25 years will depend on the transit improvements. And so I think it's absolutely essential that we hear from TransLink. Uh, I mean, I'm pleased that they are now actively going out and buying land where they see transit going so they can financially benefit from the infrastructure that they're putting in place. They haven't done that up until now. But that's why I wouldn't you know, completely dismiss the idea that if there's really good transportation between Nanaimo and Vancouver, some people, they wouldn't commute every day, but they might commute weekly in and out of Vancouver Island just because that's a possibility. And I, I would never have suggested that except for the time, Jazz, I was in London, England. Mm-hmm. And I was in a pub. It was so busy on a Thursday night. And I said to someone, is it always this busy? Yes, they said. I said, well, what about Friday? No, not on Friday, they said. People go home on Friday. I said, well, what do you mean? They said, most of the people I work with who are in our office commute into London from outside the region. And... Uh, As Vancouver continues to be expensive and all of the housing initiatives that we talk about on this show Mm -hmm. are going to help, but they're not going to suddenly reduce the cost of housing by half. Mm -hmm. Um, People are going to want to live in more affordable places and then use transit to connect. Uh, Give us a call on the open line. We'd love to hear uh, from you in regards to what our city will look like in 2015, where you think our priorities should be. Uh, Let's go to Keith in Vancouver. Hi, Keith. Hey, Michael, it's Keith Roy. Um, I, this ties in nicely with your last comment around uh, transit infrastructure moving people. I want to know from you what major road infrastructure or bridge infrastructure we need to figure out to support this, whether it's you know a road from Squamish to Coquitlam uh, on the backside or a bridge to the Sunshine Coast. Uh, what are the other major road infrastructure projects we need to support this? Keith, thanks for your call. I mean, that's one of the things we always, when we talk about commuting, it's always suburb to Vancouver, yet the bulk of our commuting in this region is suburb to suburb at the end of the day, isn't it, Michael? Yes. So the one thing I do anticipate is that we'll see proper transit from the North Shore into the downtown. We've got the C bus, but eventually there'll be an, another, uh, another crossing, another crossing yeah. with, with transit, for sure. Uh, I don't expect a connection to Vancouver Island other than by boat. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we have to replace that tunnel, and as long as we don't keep alternating which government comes in, Jazz, we might actually get to see a new bridge there or a new tunnel there. I don't know. What. Yeah, well, we have a tendency to politicize everything, including infrastructure in this province. That's for sure. And, and the bridge idea to the North Shore, I remember covering it as a reporter in the 1990s, and I think it was supposed to go under the water and come out on First Avenue. Uh, and people fought that at that time yeah. because that is a lot of traffic to come into that area. But you're right, there has to be some crossing, including more transit uh, as well. Let's go. Thanks for your call, Keith. Let's go to Vince in White Rock. Hi, Vince. Hey, Jazz. Hey, Mike. Um, my parents, they came in in 63 from Italy. Um, my dad's side all stayed there. Uh, my relatives live all in, uh, like you say, four level apartments. Um, and they, uh, you know, like communities and stuff like that. And there's, you know, 73 million in in Italy, and you could fit that times into British Columbia. How they get around is is on rail. Could we convert our rail systems into basically public transportation? Um, you know, from Chilliwack and that. I worked on Gateway. That was 1990. I've been doing road civil. Started with progressive contracting back in 1988. I mean, I mean, we uh, we haven't done much. 
in the last 33 years. Vince, I appreciate your call. We're just running out of time, but I want to give Michael time to uh, time to answer that question. Vince has got a very good point that we've done on a couple of segments on a, a train system from Chilliwack using the old railway tracks there all the way on, next to the Patello Bridge and, and connecting people from the valley yep. to SkyTrain. What are your thoughts on that? It's just more rail infrastructure, probably uh, you know, a, a system, a trend system that isn't reliant on, a, on a, say, a Cadillac system that is That's SkyTrain. Right. I think we can actually expect rail to connect Squamish to Vancouver. There's a rail line and then connect up to Lillooet. I think we can actually see future rail connecting what the, the old interurban lines. Just look at a map from uh, 100 years ago and see where there were electric train lines because they may well be coming back. Yeah. Michael, we've run out of time, but I want to give you 30 seconds. I understand you're speaking at SFU on on just the broader issue of development. Walk me through when is it and how can people find out about it? Next Wednesday night, the 18th, uh, I'm giving a talk that looks at how Vancouver's changed since 1974 when I arrived. And then following my talk, uh, Ray Spaxman, a former director of planning, Michael Epp, a current overall metro uh, planning director, and uh, Zoe Brook, a young planner, are going to comment on whether or not I have any validity to anything I say. So just go on the SFU website, Michael Geller, looking back, looking forward, and it's online, um, streamed, or in person. And there's still a few seats left. Michael, thank you for your time today. Thanks for inviting me. The Next Million, in partnership with Peak Products, innovative outdoor home improvement products sold exclusively at the Home Depot. Details at cknw.com. British Columbia is the first province to sign a tailored funding agreement with the federal government as part of the $196 billion health accord uh, the Prime Minister offered provinces earlier this year. BC will see $1.2 billion over the next three years from the federal government, marking the first investment in what will be $10 billion, a 10-year plan for collaboration, according to Federal Health Minister Mark Holland, who was uh, uh, in Vancouver today and was there with Health Minister Adrian Dix. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, the cord, the dollars that BC was able to get today, is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hello, Jazz. Hello. So tell me, what does this mean in regards to getting $1.2 billion over the next three years? Well, even though the word billion is used here, when you put it in context of the healthcare system, which is a gargantuan system, on the one hand, it's, I don't want to say diddly squat, but it's, it's not a lot of money. So $1.2 billion over three years, put that in context, BC is budgeted to spend close, more than $90 billion on healthcare over three years, so mm-hmm. $1.2 billion, or $400 million a year against a... $28 billion um, uh, expenditure every year is not a lot. It's about 1.5%, less than 1.5%. That's on top of money coming from the general agreement for, with Ottawa. This is, as you call it, the side agreements. And each province is going to uh, sign its own. So where it gets a little more significant when you see where the money goes. If you're just to spread $1.2 billion out across the entire system, you wouldn't even notice a ripple. I mean, it would have zero impact. When it's targeted spending, though, is when you do start to see an impact. So this one in particular, the target is nurses. And so of the $1.2 billion, it's about $400 million a year. About $300 million of that is going to be spent on nurses, and specifically in acute care settings. 83 new care models for nurses. And this all goes to establishing 
these new what are called nurse-to-patient ratios to ensure that nurses do, are not overworked or have this roster of patients that is simply unmanageable. This was worked out, in the, I believe, in the nurses' union contract. But to attain those ratios, you need more, literally, more money and more nurses. So this is 300 250 to $350 million a year spent on hiring and retaining nurses. That's the vast majority of the spending here. And because it's targeted into a relatively, not a small area, but a very focused area, mm-hmm. it's probably going to have more impact than just a general increase. The other $85 million a year is for mental health, and that's, that's, again, targeted expenditure. So you've got nurses and mental health, rather than just spreading the money around the entire system, which is why it's expected to have a bigger impact than just a, a general increase. It just gets eaten up by everyone. And at the end of the day, it's also new money. So it's not like you're you're just preserving the present system or you know increasing funding by inflation. These are just new dollars, really, as you say, targeted to very specific er- to specific areas that we're desperately yeah. need help. The money for the uh, the money targeted for nurses is new. The mental health component was announced back in February, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still relatively new. It wasn't there last year. So yeah, this is new money. It's far far short of what the premiers were looking for, if you recall. That last year, the premiers were sounding the alarm that Ottawa had gone from being a 50-50 partner in, in uh, the healthcare system to a 20-70 or 25-75 split. And they're looking for the feds to up their share to close to 40%. The feds came back and said, no, not going to do that. So, But they did come up with another $200 billion over 10 years. And of that, almost $50 billion in new money that wasn't there before the premiers began talking. So even though it was far short of what the premiers were looking for, it was still real money and Mm -hmm. significant money when you target it to certain areas. And BC, other provinces took the approach, well, okay, we'll take the smaller than general increase we're looking for, but now we've got this extra money we can target for things that we think are specifically unique to our province. In BC's case, it's nurses and mental health, but nursing in particular. And I note uh, the last update we got from Health Pack of that vaccination program, a vaccination program update mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this year, uh, we've already seen, uh, according to BC College of Nurses and Physicians, 5,200 new nurses, net new nurses, just hired this year. So we're starting to hire nurses in a greater clip than we've seen for some time. And then earlier you had uh, Richard on about this new accreditation program. For, for professions. Already this year, 420 ner- internationally educated nurses have been hired. I think that's probably the highest number in some time. Look for those numbers to literally explode in the coming years. We're going to hire a lot of foreign trained nurses, probably way more than just foreign trained doctors, and they're going to be coming into the system and it's going to really swell the ranks of nurses. We need 38,000 healthcare workers, new employees in the next five years. Many of those are nurses. I think if you had to pick one profession in healthcare that needs the most, it's nursing. And this is the big impetus of today's announcement. Um, you know, we had uh, Richard Usman on earlier talking about um, Premier Eby and the town hall today uh, in regards to uh, international credential recognition. I know we spent a lot of time on this session, legislative session, talking about the impact of uh, you know, housing legislation, uh, you know, banning potentially Airbnb or at least new rules around Airbnb. But this international credential re- re- uh, recognition uh, that is coming from the provincial government could, one would argue, could have a much far-reaching impact than a lot of uh, the legislation that's planned for this this fall. Just simply because there are so many British Columbians that come from other parts of the world that have find it too difficult to get through the system. They've given up, and that's why so many doctors are driving, you know, taxis, engineers working. In 
other places where they shouldn't be. They're not doing what they want to be and doing. This could have, you're right. And this could have a much more immediate impact. You're already, that nursing number I threw out there, 421 nurses just in the last six months, uh, internationally educated, which I was just, I think we were probably in the dozens a few years ago. Now we're in the hundreds, and that r- number is going to grow. So I think that bill is going to come in front of the House about accreditations is a huge Giant step forward. I think the the origins of that bill, I think, probably go back to the former B.C. Liberal government. Government's been at work on this issue for some time, trying to convince the 50 regulatory colleges and authorities that are out there to get on side and get foreign workers into the jobs. We're, we're going to get 380,000 foreign workers here in the next 10 years, many of them coming from professional backgrounds. We have a dire shortage of particularly professionally trained people in specialized areas, particularly healthcare, And that means we need to get more nurses and doctors and technicians and x-ray, you know, radiologists and technicians into the system. They may have been trained in other places, but they got the wherewithal and the skills and they need to go to work. And that's why it's going to happen, I think, quicker than some of the other measures. Well, I think you nailed it on the head there. The 50 regulatory bodies, I'm not saying they don't do good work. I think they do. But in many cases, I think the bottleneck has been there. I think the political will hasn't been there to at least be play a little tougher with some of these regulatory bodies and say, look, you know, we can say we want to recognize these people, but, you know, it, you, if you do a test to, for for uh, recognition of your of your um, skills, you shouldn't have to wait another eight months for your next test, as Richard was giving in, no. in their example. So there's been a lot of bottlenecks in the system, and we've been talking about this issue for a long time, 25 years, in my opinion, as a reporter covering this, uh, and simple things like English for a veterinarian, like had, their English had to be impeccable to, to treat your dog, even yeah. though they have the medical training. So we've put a lot of barriers in front of people from other and parts of the world. That's reflected in a survey, and all of Richard touched on the survey they did of, um, of foreign trained professionals and domestic trained. And the complexity reported by international is like too complex is 83% amongst internationals, just 56% amongst domestic. Language barriers are significant. You know, there's a lot of non-immigrant people in the education system who do not face the same language barriers that uh, certain uh, immigrants face coming into certain occupations. They're unrealistic in many places, and they have nothing to do with what you have to do in the job. So it seems the colleges are breaking down the barriers. But it's in some cases dragging, kicking and screaming to the table here. And some of it, I think, was protecting turf wars. But as, as we see mass retirements, uh, as the baby boomer generation sails into the sunset, uh, the numbers are not replacing them quick enough, which is why it's in the self-interest now of the colleges to allow foreign trained workers in to fill the gaps that are being created in so many levels. Well, I think I think the will is there. I just hope it, it in practice uh, uh, it, it's done. It may take a little while, but I think uh, I really do federally and provincially the governments are getting it. It's really getting these colleges yep. uh, and these regulatory bodies to wake up and say, you know what, we can't afford to wait anymore and you can't drag your feet and if you do, somebody is going to be held accountable because we just will not put up with it anymore. We just I think we turn the proverbial... Um, corner here. Yeah, fingers crossed. Hey, before you go, uh, the vaccine rollout, you don't see any issues. Do you, do you think there's going to be much of an uptake? I, and I'm not saying people don't want to be vaccinated. I think they do. But there's lots of folks I hear going, you know what, I, I've had, um, I need a break. I've done my bit. And I think I'm going to skip this one. What do you think? There's going to be much of an uptake? Oh, there will be an, a significant uptake, but it will not, I don't, and I talked to health authorities about this, they're not expecting as high numbers as we did with the first and second doses. Mm-hmm. But if I was advising a friend right now, I'd say, go get your, go get your vaccine. I know you're, you know, you got vaccine, vaccination fatigue. I do too. I'm going to get my vaccine because this, there's a new strain afoot 
in, in, in the world, a new variant. There's a new vaccine that's in to specifically deal with this variant. I've got friends and you've got friends and colleagues I know are laid low with this latest strain of COVID. Yeah. And this is going to be an annual event. You're going to expect it to get your flu shot. And if you're smart, you'll get one. And if you're smart, you'll get an annual COVID shot. And that vaccine is going to be constantly modified as the flu vaccine changes every year. The flu vaccine you're getting this year is likely different than the one last year or the year before. It's part of life now is getting an annual vaccination. It used to be for one. Now it's for two. It may be for three viruses or even four in the years ahead. But that's the new reality. Yeah. Key, thank you. All right. Take care. Welcome back to the show. Uh, at this hour, there is a gathering at Jack Pool Plaza. Uh, a significant amount of members of the Jewish community are gathering to show solidarity with the people of Israel. One of the individuals there uh, is one of our guests from yesterday. Nico Sabinski is vice president of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, and he joins us now. Nico, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Uh, You've been talking to the community um, ever since news first came from Israel, and today the community is getting together uh, at Jackpool Plaza. Uh, tell me what you're hearing and what you're seeing and, and, and what people are expressing at the rally. I am here at the Jackpool Plaza with over a thousand community members and Vancouverites who are coming together to express solidarity with Israel and to also show respect for um, the life of Ben Mizrahi, a Canadian Israeli who was murdered by Hamas. We are here in full force, all together under the rain, showing solidarity for the land and the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. How important was it for the, for the community to be together t- today at Jackpool Plaza? It was very important. You know, the community needed to come together. The community needed to uh, express its feelings and find a way to really start seeing through the terror that Hamas has unleashed on the people of Israel over the last number of days. So it is very important for us to come together, but not only to come together as a community, to come together with all Vancouver, from all walks of life, to reject terror. Um, one of the things, Nico, uh, in the situation of getting together is the desire to help. And sometimes people can v- feel very helpless because they're thousands and thousands of miles away. Uh, what do you see uh, coming from the Jewish community in the days ahead in regards to helping uh, those that were affected and those who just want to help the people of Israel? You know, in the community, we have started to talk about how can we help. And one of the ways in which we are helping is we are running a, uh, an appeal, a fundraising appeal, through the Jewish Federation, so that people can give what they can to the land of Israel and to the people of Israel in this time of need, and to help with the days ahead. But we're also starting to grapple with, you know, issues of uh, well-being and mental health. Uh, many in the community are in shock, right? Mm-hmm. Many in the community um, feel helpless in this moment. And despite our resilience, there's a lot of people that need help. So we as a community are also looking at what that looks like for us. And how can we help? And also, how can we help people understand here what has happened in Israel? Mm-hmm. Well, Nico, I know it's a tremendously um, and it's emotional time for the community. I really appreciate you making time for us uh, at the at the rally today. Have yourself a good 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 day. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.